Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel. And today we are in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we are going to cover the entire chapter. So if you flipped your Bibles, there are 35 verses. So it's going to be a lot, but hopefully we can fit all of that in in this hour. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and the title of today's lesson is False Repentance. False Repentance. And if you're able, please stand with me. And if you have your Bibles, read along silently as I read out loud. 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh has sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. So now obey the voice of the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, infant and nursing baby, ox and sheep, camel and donkey." Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talium, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Canaanites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. You showed loving kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul struck the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he sees Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs and all that was good, and they were not willing to devote them to destruction, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of Yahweh came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not established my words. And Samuel became angry and cried out to Yahweh all night, then Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told to Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of Yahweh. I have established the word of Yahweh. But Samuel said, What then is the sound of the sheep in my ears? and the sound of the oxen which I am hearing. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh your God, but the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what Yahweh spoke to me last night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, is it not true 
though you, you were little in your own eyes. You were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And Yahweh anointed you king over Israel. And Yahweh sent you on a mission and said, go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of Yahweh and went on the way on which Yahweh sent me and have brought back Agog, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God, at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I've indeed trespassed against the command of Yahweh and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So now, please forgive my sin and return with me that I may worship Yahweh. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of Yahweh and Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. Then Samuel turned to go, but Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your, to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the eternal one of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship Yahweh your God. So Samuel returned, following after Saul, and Saul worshiped Yahweh. Then Samuel said, Bring Agog near to me, the king of the Amalekites. Then Agog came to him in chains, and Agog said, Surely the bitterness of death has departed. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agog to pieces before Yahweh at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. So Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Please be seated. Has anyone ever said to you, I'm sorry, 
but you know they didn't mean it? Well, today's passage illustrates the reality that while people may tell God they are sorry, often it's fake sorrow. It's false repentance. So by way of reminder, back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we had learned that King Saul was not a man after God's own heart. He didn't seek God's will. He had a disobedient heart. But God allowed Saul to continue to rule over Israel. Saul and his son Jonathan, in fact, led God's people in a decisive victory over the Philistines. And Jonathan, with only one other man, he bravely attacked their enemy. And Jonathan proved that he was a man of valor with exemplary character. And we would see that Jonathan could have been an excellent king. But because God had ended Saul's dynasty, Jonathan would never rule over God's people. And so now we come to chapter 15. How would King Saul respond after his act of disobedience in chapter 13? God spared Saul's kingship and even gives him victory over the Philistines in chapter 14. Well, today's passage, it is a longer passage, will divide the passage into four sections. First, Saul's disobedience in verse 1 to 9. Second, God's regret, verse 10 and 11. Third, God's rejection, verse 12 to 23. And fourth, Saul's hypocrisy, verses 24 to 35. So if you still have your Bibles, let's go back to chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Scripture says, Then Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. So now obey the voice of the words of Yahweh. And notice how, even in the first verse, Israel is not Saul's people. Did you see that? Israel is God's people. And so Saul still needs to heed Samuel's instructions that come directly from God. Samuel is saying that the same God that has anointed you king is the same God that's about to give you these important instructions. And verse one, the the, the verb that's translated obey or listen, or in the King James Version, hearken, this verb means more than simply just listening. It involves obedience to the words that are spoken. It could also be translated, pay careful attention to this. So it's not just listen, Saul, but listen closely. Pay attention. You are required to obey every single word. And this verb is repeated five more times in this chapter. Verse 14, verse 19, verse 20, verse 22, verse 24. And this underscores the central theme of this chapter, and it's the theme of obedience. So Samuel's telling Saul, you you listen carefully. You must obey God. And look at verse three. What is the command? This is God's command. Verse three, go down and strike Amalek and devote to destruction 
all that he has. Don't spare him and put to death men and women, even infant and nursing babies, all the animals. Now, just by way of reminder, if some of you are wondering, who's, who's Amalek? <laughs> well, back in Genesis chapter 36, we learned that Amalek was a descendant of Esau. Remember, Isaac had uh, two sons, Jacob and Esau, and the Jewish people came through the line of Jacob. And so Esau had many sons, much possessions, and so his descendants, sometimes called the Edomites, because they lived in Edom, well, Amalek is a descendant of Esau. And the Amalekites, they were a nomadic tribe and they inhabited or they dwelled in the southern part of Judah. And they first attacked the Amalekites. They attacked Israel at Rephidim in Exodus chapter 17. And get this, God promised to the Israelites during the time of Moses that he wants the Amalekites to be totally destroyed. In fact, in Exodus chapter 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 25, the, Moses tells Israel that once you get to the promised land, I want you to devote to destruction the Amalekites. So this command that Saul is reminding King, uh, that Samuel is reminding King Saul is not the first time the Israelites and King Saul would have heard the command to devote to destruction the Amalekites. It started back in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And this Hebrew verb that's translated devote to destruction, some of your English translations would read completely destroy, totally destroy. And it is to dedicate something or someone completely to God, usually by destruction, like in Joshua chapter six, or by giving an offering in Leviticus chapter 27. So this term to devote to destruction is basically uh, a term used for devotion to a deity that requires total destruction of everything that's captured or possessed. This verb is used in Joshua chapter six, describing Jericho. Uh, Joshua writes uh, in chapter six, and the city, that is Jericho, shall be devoted to destruction. It and all that belongs to it belongs to Yahweh. And I had alluded to in, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, let me just read Deuteronomy chapter five, verse 19. Uh, God says, therefore it will be when Yahweh your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which Yahweh your God gives to you as an inheritance to possess, that is Canaan, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. So remember, if you're the king of Israel, according to Deuteronomy, you are supposed to copy down a personal copy of your law. You're to study the law so that you can understand, know, and therefore obey God's law. So King Saul should have known this. He should have read this a number of times. So now for Samuel to tell Saul, this is the time, Saul. 
you are to devote to destruction the Amalekites. This is not the first time, and in fact, King Saul probably should look this at this as a privilege, that he is to be the chosen one to carry out God's plan. And I think an important uh, implication is this, that even though King Saul was the earthly king, God never abdicated his position as the sovereign king over Israel. And so he declares war, that is God, declares war on the, on the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17. He preordains Amalek's annihilation in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And so now God commands King Saul to carry out this plan. Now, as new covenant Christians today, um, we see that God still judges the godless and the impenitent. But in the new covenant, we as Christians are not called <laughs> to annihilate a people group, right? God calls us to exercise mercy towards those who wrong us. Do you remember Jesus' disciples, James and John? They got upset because they were being mistreated. And remember what they told Jesus? They said to Jesus, should we command fire to come down from heaven to annihilate these people that have offended us? And what did Jesus say? <laughs> Don't, yeah. No, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, the son of man, that is Jesus, that's what he calls himself sometimes, the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So let's go to verse 6. Um, we see here that Saul said to the Canaanites, Go, depart, and go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. So again, a little background. The Canaanites, who are the Canaanites, you might ask? Well, back a few hundred years ago, Moses, Moses got married, and his father, Jethro, was a Canaanite. And the Canaanites in Exodus chapter 18, including Jethro, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, the Canaanites were very helpful and hospitable to the Israelites. And you can read more about this in Exodus chapter 18. And so Saul's gesture to allow the Canaanites to evacuate was both appropriate, commendable, and gracious. You understand this. If a country is going to start a new war on a region, the people you care about, you might give them some warning and say, hey, I'm going to start a war. A lot of people are going to die here. I'm giving you a heads up. Evacuate from that area lest you be destroyed. And so that's what King Saul does in giving this warning to the Canaanites. And then let's read verse 7. So Saul struck the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Sheor. And these two cities just show that when King Saul goes to attack the Amalekites, it's over an extensive geographic area. It's not just a small area because um, Havilah is covering everywhere to shore from the west coast of Arabia all the way to 
Egypt's northeast border. And so Saul's victory, as described in verse 7, you may not see it by just reading the verse, but it's an extensive victory over basically the whole part of the Holy Lands, from north all the way to the southern border, budding Egypt. But what happens in verse 9? Read with me. But Saul and the people spared Agog, Agog, and the best of the sheep, oxen, fatlings, lambs, all that was good. They were not willing to devote them to destruction. Remember back in verse 3, God commanded, do not spare them. Do not spare them. Well, what happens in verse 9? Saul and the people spare Agog. This mirrors Achan's sin. Remember the story in Joshua chapter 7? Achan was so greedy, he decided to keep the goods that were devoted to destruction. Now, we aren't told why Saul had decided to spare Agog. Was it political? Was it pride to parade a captive as a trophy of war? Well, we read later in verse 12 that Saul will set up a monument for himself. So perhaps pride had something to do with it. But notice here, they did destroy the worthless things, right? The things that had no value. You know, it's kind of like when you're cleaning out your house. Uh, the, the junk, it's easy to throw away. It's the things that have value that take a bit more thought. Do I really want to get rid of this because it has value? Destroying the best animals, choice spoils would have been costly. And so perhaps part of Saul's disobedience was a manifestation of his covetousness. The Hebrew text actually puts Saul, the name Saul, in the first position. And it emphasizes that it is Saul who is the one primarily responsible for sparing Agog and the best of everything else. Saul was the one that was culpable of this great disobedience. So we see Saul's disobedience. Second, let's look at God's regret. God's regret. And we see it in verse 10 and 11. Then the word of Yahweh came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. The word that's translated regret here is used four times in this chapter. And in this first occurrence of regret here in verse 10 and 11, it has a similar meaning to Genesis chapter 6, verse 7. Genesis 6, God says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creepy things to the birds of the sky. And listen to this, for I regret that I have made them. So when we read here in verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king. This verb here in this situation has a sense of deep emotion, concern. It, it doesn't mean that God was deceived by his expectations about Saul, but rather that 
that God was deeply troubled about Saul. And, and the troubles and the failure and the consequences that would develop because of Saul's disobedience. And we'll soon see that this verb used later in verse 29 will, will have a different meaning, meaning, and we'll get to that. And look what happens next uh, at the end of verse 11. And Samuel became angry and cried out to Yahweh all night. Now, when you read this, there are some, when they read this verse, they speculate that perhaps Samuel was angry with God, that either God was changing his mind or God was allowing this to happen. But I think if this were the case, it would be strange that Samuel, there's no reprimand of Samuel. For example, the, the prophet Jonah, when he got angry with God, uh, he was reprimanded. But, but not Samuel in this case. I think more likely here, Samuel was angry with Saul, which is consistent with the rest of the text. Because as you read Samuel talking with Samuel in the subsequent conversation, you can almost read the seething anger that Samuel has towards Saul and his indignation. And why, why was Samuel angry? we see that Saul listened to the people, wanted to please the people instead of pleasing God. I read a story, um, and it was a story of a young pianist. He was an accomplished pianist, and he was invited to perform at a prestigious concert hall where thousands were planning to attend. And as he was performing, he actually didn't care so much or worried so much about the applause that he might receive. In fact, after every song, the, the audience, you know, jumped up with praise and clapping their hands. But the young pianist would only glare at an upper box seat on his left side where his mastro teacher was because he understood that the only person in that concert hall that truly appreciated the quality of his performance was the Mastro. Kids, adults, it's a small matter when people around you don't appreciate you or are even disappointed with you. It's a much more serious matter when God is displeased with you. And brothers and sisters, if you are not born again, if you haven't been united with Christ, God has the same regretful disposition toward you. God didn't make a mistake in creating you. He doesn't feel like he needs to change his mind but his divine regret is one of profound concern of you and your standing before him. And in fact, in the New Testament, we, regree, we read that it's not just regret, but it, without Christ, we are enemies of God. God looks at you as his enemy. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, among whom we also formally conduct ourselves with the lust of our flesh and were by nature 
children of wrath, of God's wrath. Colossians 1.21, God says that although you were formerly alienated and enemies, and the only way we can be reconciled with God, of course, is through Jesus. And Paul says in Romans chapter 5, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, and much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we see Saul's disobedience, God's regret. Third, let's look at God's rejection. God's rejection. And it's this next portion in verse 12 to 23. Let's start again in verse 12. Scripture reads that Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself. You know, some Israelites, when they get victory, remember what what Abraham did after he had great victory in, in Genesis chapter 14? Did he set up a monument for himself? No, no. He, he immediately found uh, a place to worship God, an altar meeting Melchizedek. No, to celebrate his victory over the Amalekites, Saul erects a trophy in his own honor. And this trophy is about uh, eight miles south of Hebron. And instead of honoring God through obedience, he, that is Saul, takes credit for the military victory, and shows off his pride, expresses self-worship. You know, the same thing later happens with David's son, Absalom. In 2 Samuel chapter 18, Absalom does the same thing. He sets up for himself a pillar, all right? And he says, I don't have a son to preserve my name. So he he sets up a pillar and he names the pillar Absalom's uh, monument. And it was called Absalom's Monument uh, up to the day of the readers of First and Second Samuel. Of course, of course, Samuel was very angry, unimpressed with this monument. Look at verse 14. Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? So Samuel is coming in and and he's hearing all these animal sounds. He doesn't even have to see. He he can hear it. And he knows just from the sound of all these animals, it is proof that Saul had failed to execute God's commands. And just like back in chapter 13, Saul brings out his excuses. Look at verse 15. He says, they, that is, Your people, God, they, your people have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God. Did you notice the pronouns that are used in this verse? They have brought. It's not me. It's not us. They have brought it, not we have brought it. And notice even how he refers to God. He says, to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God. Saul doesn't even say, my God, our God. Samuel, these people, you know, kept everything to sacrifice to your God. And so, in essence, Saul was saying, Samuel, he's not my God anymore. 
Yahweh is your God. Look at, continue what uh, the text says. Look down at verse 17 and Samuel says, it is not true, though you were little, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel and Yahweh anointed you king over Israel. And Yahweh sends you on this mission to go and devote to destruction the Amalekites and fight against them until they, have cons- they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh? We didn't cover it explicitly, but back in chapters 9 and 10, Saul was a nobody. There was nothing uh, that, that was noble. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, which at this time was one of the lesser tribes. But it was God that exalted Saul. He anointed him as king, gave him initial victory. And Samuel's saying, well, how could you now not obey the voice of Yahweh? Saul, again, parrots a similar excuse that he gave in verse 15. Look at verse 20. Saul says to Samuel, I did obey the voice of Yahweh, and I have brought back Agog, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But again, it was the people. It was, it, it was the people who took some of the spoils, the choicest things. But they even did it just to preserve so that we can sacrifice it to Yahweh at Gilgal. And then Samuel says an important truth in verse 22. Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Samuel is asking Saul basically a rhetorical question. Does God prefer burnt offerings and sacrifices or does God desire obedience? Proverbs 15.8 says, the sacrifice of the wicked are an abomination to Yahweh. Without obedience, sacrifices and offerings to God means nothing. Scripture says, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. Wash yourselves, purify yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. That's what Isaiah told God's people in Isaiah 1. Hosea says that God delights in loving kindness rather than sacrifice. David understood this. David, after his egregious sins, in Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17, David cries out, To you, God, you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you are not despised. Well, how does this apply to us today? You and I don't bring offerings and sacrifices, well, especially animal offerings and sacrifices, but we do engage in other religious activities, don't we? You can come to church 52 weeks a year. You can pray before every meal. 
You can pray in the morning. You can pray every night before you lie down to sleep. You can every Sunday offer your financial tithes and offerings. But if you do these things without turning away from your sin and trusting in Jesus alone to forgive you of your sins, not only are your religious activities, not only do they mean nothing to God, they are loathsome, detestable. They are an abomination. So what does Samuel say in verse 23? Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, God has also rejected you from being king. So if it wasn't clear, back in chapter 13, Saul's punishment was that his dynasty would reign, or it would end. So his children would not succeed him as king. But now here in chapter 15, God, through Samuel, declares that Saul's personal right to be king is now over. And despite Saul's excuses that he saved the spoils to sacrifice to God at Gilgal, God has rejected Saul. So we see Saul's disobedience, God's regret, God's rejection. Fourthly, let's look at Saul's hypocrisy. His hypocrisy. Look down in verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed trespassed against the command of Yahweh and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So now, please forgive my sin and return with me that I may worship Yahweh. When you read this, this is Saul's confession. Doesn't it seem genuine? Adequate? Sincere? As Saul admits here, he feared the people and not God. But see, here's the problem. The problem is that there was no change that is seen in Saul. His repentance was false, inauthentic, phony. Even after his confession, Saul cared more about his kingship and his reputation before the people than his standing before God. Look down in verse 27. Then Samuel turned to go, but Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And so Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Saul was trying to seize the robe, not because he was trying to, to cling to God, but he was trying to, whatever he could, to continue to possess the power that he had in ruling over Israel. Notice the, the tense, uh, the verb tense, right? We see here, Yahweh has torn. Yahweh has given. It's in the perfect tense. And in God's mind, 
the transfer of power from King Saul to Israel's new king, it had already been accomplished. It had already taken place. And the, the term today, or in the ESV, your Bible reads, this day, it's used in a legal sense. The rejection was final and had already taken place. Which now leads us to verse 29, when the text says, also the eternal one of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Remember I said that this word was used four times in this chapter. First time was in verse 11. Second and third time is used in this verse. But in this verse, it has a bit of a different meaning. It, its meaning is similar to when it's used in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. It reads, Now it happened when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not guide them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their mind. That's the same verb that's translated regret in verse 29. Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So the term in, in verse 11 and, and verse 35, at the end of the chapter, regret expresses God's sorrow at how Saul turned out. But in verse 29 here, it emphatically states that God will not regret in the sense that God will not change his mind concerning a decision once he has made it. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, uh, Moses writes, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should regret, he should repent, he should change his mind. God doesn't change his mind. God is immutable. He never changes. There are times when he, he's sorrowful, sorrowful when about creating the earth and seeing how broken it is in Genesis chapter six. And now here in chapter 15, sorrowful about King Saul. Saul continues in verse 30. Saul says, Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Again, this is where Saul shows his true colors and he reveals his true concern. He is more preoccupied with finding honor before his people than being reconciled with God. Saul wanted to salvage the situation for his own benefit. In, in another way of saying it, Saul wanted to save his face. And so look at verse 31. So Samuel returned and followed after Saul, and Saul worshipped Yahweh. <laughs> so picture the scene. Saul grabs Samuel's robe, it tears, and Saul is pleading to Samuel, saying, please come back, please come back. Help me save my face before the people. Samuel follows Saul back. And I bet you one of the things Samuel was doing is he's going to see what Saul does. 
And what does Saul do? He goes through the religious motions. That was his worship. But he didn't do what God commanded him to do. Do you see Saul's hypocrisy? He persisted in defying God, remaining disobedient. He did not lay a hand on Agog. And so read what Samuel does next. Verse 32, Samuel said, bring Agog near to me, king of the Amalekites. And Agog came to him in chains. And read this, and Agog said, surely the bitterness of death has departed. Agog was still alive. He sees everything that's happening. And based on his observation, he was still under the false impression that he was going to be spared. The people wanted him to be spared. King Saul spared him. And they go through their worship and nothing happens to Agog. And seeing Saul's disposition toward him, Agog felt he had, he had survived. But instead, Samuel follows through with the task that Saul had failed to complete. This verb that is translated hacked to pieces, it's actually only used once here in the Old Testament. Some of your English translations translates this verb to cut or hewed in the King James or New American Standard, or one translation is butchered. To be hacked into pieces is not the normal way to kill a person. It was not the normal means of putting someone to death. Samuel hacks Agog into pieces as a priest would violently cut an animal sacrifice, putting Agog to death for his sins. See, God had commanded Saul and the Israelites to devote to destruction the Amalekites. And because the Israelites did not obey, it was more than just the scene here. Because remember what happens next. Because they didn't exterminate these wicked Amalekites, the Amalekites came back later and they raided the southern territory and they took women and children captive, including David's family, We'll read about that in 1 Samuel 30. And remember the book of Esther? There was a very evil man named Haman who wanted to exterminate Israel. Haman was a descendant of Agog. So how does God respond to Saul's false repentance and his hypocrisy? Verse 35. So Saul did not, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul and Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So two things happen. The first is God abandons Saul. 
Remember, as we've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel, that at the beginning of 1 Samuel, word from, the God, from God was rare, right? God was silent. And then Samuel came, and, and God brought Samuel to be his prophet. And word of Samuel and God went to all Israel, is what we read in chapter 4. But the fact here that Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death indicates and implies that the word of God that had come through Samuel would not visit Saul again. God would not speak to Saul for the rest of his life. So first, God abandoned Saul. And second, God regrets meaning that he felt profound sorrow over Saul. You know, Jesus, he expressed a similar time of regret to the people in Jerusalem. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. But can I tell you something boys and girls, and all of you here in this room, while you are still alive today, God will not abandon you. And if you are a Christian, because God poured out the Holy Spirit from Pentecost till now, if you are a follower of Jesus, God's Spirit indwells in you perpetually. He will not leave you as he did Saul. But like Saul, all of us have fallen short. And the crux of the matter is this. Have you and I expressed genuine repentance? Or is your repentance fake like Saul? Counterfeit and inauthentic. You see, when you read this, Saul said he was sorry. He said all the right words. I did wrong. He pled for mercy. But he pined for man's praise and not God's. He goes through the motions of worship while disobeying God and sparing the life of Agog. You can come to church every week. Bring your gifts and money and offerings. You can sing hymns with your hands raised up. You can look your Sunday best. But if all our religious gestures, they mean nothing without genuine repentance that leads to obedience. I leave you with what the Apostle Paul said, or the Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 3. Peter says, therefore, repent and return to God so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray.